I think I've shared before about uh, an older man who went to our church in Sedalia, Missouri, where my wife and I are from, one of the charter members of that church. Uh, he would often open up when he was presiding over a service. He would often open up with something like, uh, you know, welcome to Maplewood Church, the name of that church. And uh, if he said another church name, that'd be awkward, wouldn't it? Uh, but he, he said, uh, we got so many ways about us here, you're bound to like some of them. And I think that's becoming pretty true of our church if we're not there already. Uh, I love that we have so many different people from so many different backgrounds that when I'm talking with people or, or out in the world, you know, rubbing shoulders with people, I, there's always a line that comes back to Payson Bible Church, somehow, some way. I know a guy who knows this or has been there or has done that, and it's just real neat to be a part of a church like this, that we are not a monolith uh, that we are actually um, really a diverse group of people. And I like that about us. So, way to be different. <laughs> you may not have people tell you that too much, but that's, I mean it, mean it in the best sense. Well, let's turn to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20 is where we're going to start today before we get to Deuteronomy. Numbers is that book right before Deuteronomy. And if the sermon series in Deuteronomy was a flight... This would be the point in the flight when we would say, make sure you have your seat backs and tray tables in their upright and locked position. We are beginning our descent. Uh, next week, we are going to land. It'll be our last sermon next week in the book of Deuteronomy. And what a fun adventure it's been, at least for me. It's been great. And uh, look forward to what we have for the rest of the year, starting new sermon series. Those are always a lot of fun. Uh, those first sermons of a new sermon series can be really challenging, but they're a lot of fun. Well, we're going to read from Numbers 20 here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, before we get started, why don't I remind you of something and then open up with a word of prayer. I want to remind you that today we do have our mid-year business meeting. So if you are able, and I hope you all are, to stick around for 30-ish minutes after this service, we're going to meet in the coin room over on that side of the building, and we'll get you a financial update, a graduation fundraiser update, and other updates along with that. Uh, so please plan on staying if you can. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you as we just sang, thank you for sending your son and leaving your spirit till the work on earth is done. We are not mere humans, but Lord, you have created us in your image. You have redeemed us through the sacrificial work of Christ, and you've given us the fullness of God living within the Holy Spirit, guiding and directing our steps and illuminating our minds as we read Scripture. What an amazing thing. So much to be thankful for, but considering what the world is like right now, particularly our country, we can all be thankful that this life isn't it, but this life is but a vapor and there is so much more, that there is eternal life, that there is eternity with you waiting for your people, and what an amazing reality, an amazing truth, an amazing hope that is. If we were to look around... Uh, for hope 
in our land today, we wouldn't find much at all. But here we are gathered to look into your word and to find hope there, to look to you and to find hope from you, to look to each other and find messages of hope from one another. Thank you, Lord. And I ask that as we finish these chapters in Deuteronomy, that you would bless us through the study of Scripture, that we would come to your word with the right posture of heart, the right mindset, the right attitude, that we would be looking for application as your spirit makes in our lives. I ask that though I am a sinner, both by nature and by choice, that I wouldn't get in the way, but that your text would be clear to your people today, that you would speak to your sheep and change all of us, conform all of us into the image of Christ. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your notes, make sure you're following along in today's message. Starting off talking about Moses passing the baton. As Tyler read for us earlier in the opening scripture, Joshua is coming back onto the scene in the book of Deuteronomy. And Joshua is going to receive that baton from Moses as a leader in Israel. And Moses knows here at the end of his life, that there are a few things he needs to say. He needs to say some things to the people in general. He needs to say some things to Joshua specifically. And he needs to say some things to the other leaders in Israel. And when we get to Deuteronomy 31 here in a few moments, we'll see Moses' encouragement to the people of Israel. But to understand the encouragement he gives, we have to understand a little bit of the background of Moses. And that requires you to be refreshed a bit. Again, Moses is at the end of his life. God has told him specifically, you are about to die. There are a lot of people who you know, like to throw around that question, would you like to know the date of your death? Well, how would you like to be told mere days before it happens? You're about to die. <laughs> wow, that would be something. Well, Moses has been told that. Moses is at the ripe age of 120 at this point. And when you think about Moses' life, 120, it's really easily divisible by 40. The first 40 years of his life he spent in Egypt, living essentially as an Egyptian, until he got mad that a Hebrew was being mistreated and he choked out that guy, and then he had to run away. And he went to the land of Midian. And so for 40 years he was in the land of Midian, taking care of the pastures there. And at the age of 80... The angel of the Lord spoke to him out of the burning bush. Eighty. You might think, well, he was probably, you know, in his 30s. Eighty. Moses was called to ministry at age 80. And what's been going on for the last 40 years? Wow. Well, there was that exodus that lasted a number of days. And after that, it's just been wandering, hasn't it? Moses has spent the last third of his life, essentially, leading this wandering people through the wilderness, experiencing all sorts of trial, hearing all sorts of grumbling and complaining. How would you like to spend the last third of your life like that? Moses did. And because of a certain event, a very specific event in that wandering, he is now unable to go with them into the promised land. And I went back through on my computer where I keep all my sermons, and I did a search for all the Deuteronomy sermons that I've preached 
And we have not looked at the text from Numbers 20 that explains why Moses can't enter the promised land. We've referenced it. It's come up several times, but we've not looked at the text. And so I thought we'd open there today, knowing that Moses is at the end of his life. He can see the promised land, but he knows that he can't go there. And this is why, starting in verse 8, Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, the people of Israel were thirsty, and Moses implored of the Lord, and the Lord said this, verse 8, take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Now, that's pretty amazing. You ever tried to squeeze a rock, see if you get water out of it? Verse 9, so Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Verse 11, Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Verse 13, those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. So you might have two questions after reading that passage. The first, well, maybe three. The first question might be, what did Moses do wrong again? <laughs> well, God said, speak to the rock, and he hit the rock. He didn't speak to it as he was commanded. He struck the rock. But your questions might be, why didn't Moses just do as he was told? Why didn't he just do it? Well, if you read back in the Old Testament in Exodus, I believe it's Exodus 17, there was a similar incident where the people were whining, we're thirsty, we're thirsty. And so God said, take your rod, hit the rock, and water will come out. So Moses did, and it did. This time, God said, speak to the rock. And Moses, not listening intently to the words of God, but relying on his own understanding, he struck the rock again instead of speaking to it. And God says, you were not treating me as holy. You're not showing me to be holy among these people. Because you might ask also, well, what's the big deal? <laughs> Striking, speaking, who cares? God cares. He's the one who makes the law. He's the authority. It's like saying, yeah, okay, the speed limit's usually 45. Then I went to that school zone and it's 15, but who cares? 45, right through the school zone. Who cares? God cares. The authority cares. When God says something, it is firm. There's no wiggle room. God doesn't speak some things as solid commands and then speak other things as, well, iffy, squishy. Anything that God says, it's a command. And because of this event, see that again in verse 12, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. That's why Moses was not allowed to go to the promised land. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 31, and we'll see 
these opening statements that he has for Israel, knowing he is about to die and the congregation is about to go into the land. He communicates to them from his experience with God and because he's under the inspiration of God, he speaks to them these words about the Lord being their need. The Lord is the one they need and the Lord is faithful. Look at verse 3 with me. Moses says to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 31, verse 3, it is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. Moses won't. The Lord will. He will destroy these nations before you and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you just as the Lord has spoken. Look down at verse 6. He says to the congregation of Israel, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. He's letting the people know that the Lord is the one they need. The Lord is the one who will execute justice. Because remember, this is not like the land was empty. The land had people in it. And so they couldn't just roll into the land and take up all the empty space. There was no empty space. The people were in there in a land that didn't belong to them, and they had to drive them out. So they had to be encouraged. You can imagine what that would be like, right? Imagine the state of New Jersey. That's about the size of Israel. The state of New Jersey. And a whole bunch of our Christian congregations were broadened. We were looking at New Jersey from Pennsylvania. We could see it. Okay, go. Inhabit it. There are people there. What do we do? The Lord is with you, is what Israel was told. The Lord is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. We heard that name Joshua there in verse 3. He speaks to Joshua specifically. Look at verse 7. It says, Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Drop down to verse 23, another word to Joshua from Moses, through Moses, I should say. This is God speaking directly to Joshua. It says, Then he, God, commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. This is the first time we've heard about Joshua since chapter 3. Can you believe that? We've gone through 28 chapters in Deuteronomy. Joshua's been there. It's not like he was away on vacation or something. He was right there with all of Israel, and he wasn't mentioned by name again until this very moment. And this was perhaps just days and weeks before the events of Joshua chapter 1. Perhaps you're familiar with that phrase, be strong and courageous. It comes up in Joshua chapter 1 quite a bit, and you should turn there with me. It's the next book. Keep your finger here, turn a page or two to Joshua chapter 1. Because after Moses dies, we have the continued history of Israel under the leadership of Joshua. Let's look at the first few verses of Joshua chapter 1. It says, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, 
Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according... This is an important verse. Remember this verse for later. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's the message to Joshua. That's the message to the people. Be strong. Be courageous. The Lord is with you. He's your reason for being strong. And this law that was given through Moses, this is like the pinnacle of Moses' ministry, the Torah. Keep it with you. Keep it in your mouth. Keep it in front of you. Constantly be aware of God's good commands. Now, you can imagine how daunting this task would be if it weren't for God's sovereign goodness, right? To go forward and to dispossess these people. How hard would it be to be a repo guy? Have you ever thought about that? You guys ever seen some of those shows about the guys who go around and repossess people and how dangerous it is? Can you imagine dispossessing entire people groups? How daunting that is? if it were not for God's sovereign goodness? Because we don't just believe that God is sovereign. We also believe that God is good. When you combine those things together, is there any reason to be afraid or dismayed or to think He's going to fail you? Not at all. If God is both sovereign and good, He is able to do abundantly more than we think or ask. God is able because He is God. So Moses encourages the people. He encourages Joshua. He also specifically encourages leadership in Israel. Look at verse 9 of Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31 again, verse 9. What does he do with the law? It says, So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which He will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and children and the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law, 
Their children, who have not known, will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. The law was written by Moses. He was the human mediator for God to get his commands to the people. And he entrusted that law to leaders who were then to do what with it? Teach their children. To teach the next generation. So Moses was given a law. God entrusted the law to him. Moses was to entrust that law to others, and so he did. And they were to entrust that law to others still, that the law would be focused on in generations to come within Israel. Now, we're going to see over and over again today that that didn't happen, that they failed. But I want to say a word about this law, and it's considered that perhaps in verse 9, where it says Moses wrote this law, that it might even be talking about Deuteronomy specifically. But in any case, listen to what Daniel Block has to say about the Torah and this section of the Torah. He says, this book is the heart of the Torah that the priests were to teach and model in which psalmists delighted, to which the prophets appealed, by which faithful kings ruled, and by which righteous citizens lived. The Torah those first five books of the Bible, and specifically the book of Deuteronomy, had an incredibly weighty position in the life of Israel. God intended for it to be at the forefront of every aspect of worship for the Israelites. And we see some of that here in this section that I just read, where Moses commands them in verse 10, at the end of every seven years when debts are forgiven... And at the Feast of Booths, what are they supposed to do? Well, they're to celebrate the Torah. On the eighth day of the celebration, it is to be a a focus on the Torah, to celebrate specifically the law of God. The Feast of Booths was eight days every year. It started on the Sabbath and it ended on the Sabbath. And that last Sabbath day was to be one in which they took out the law and read it. Not just the men who participated in the festival, but they were to gather all the women, all the children, and even all the immigrants, all the foreigners, all the passers-by in Israel. They were to gather to hear of this great God. What an important moment in Israelites' history. And what significance there would be that they would read through the law and celebrate the law of the year that debts were forgiven. We talked about this in Deuteronomy 15, every seven years, remission of debts. Remember that? That thing that we don't have in America? Remember that? (laughs) Every seven years, debts forgiven. How significant would it be as a people of God to hear all your debts are wiped away, clean, clean slate, no debts owed. Listen to the very words of God. What would that do to a person's heart before hearing God's word? What should that do to us every time we gather, when we sing proclamations of the gospel that all of our debts are forgiven, that we thank God for His salvation, that we know and understand that we are His children and no one can change that? Now let's hear the Word of God. That should orient our hearts as we seek to hear what God has said to us. But like I mentioned, Israel constantly rejected these prescriptions. This whole, every seven years, debts are forgiven, have the Feast of Booths, then read the law. 
Nope, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. In fact, there, there wasn't a time when they even celebrated the Feast of Booths until the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. After Joshua's generation, they didn't even celebrate the Tabernacle Feast until the time of Nehemiah. This is like a thousand years. Isn't that amazing? What were they told over and over again? Have the law, keep it with you, and pass it down, and trust it to the next generation. And even though Joshua's generation, it says that they live for the Lord, they didn't pass it to their kids. Therefore, what comes after the book of Joshua? The book of Judges. And what's the theme of the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You had a bunch of children rise up in Israel who didn't know anything about the law. As incredible as it is for us who have been studying this for months, that we know more about this law than a thousand years of Israelites. That's incredible. Not just interpretation, but even just knowing what it says. They didn't even know. And I want to illustrate this to you from Nehemiah. Can you find the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah chapter 8. It's on page 382 in my Bible. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 8. So you're going to want to go past First and Second Chronicles, and after you hit Second Chronicles, you're really close. You have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. So between Ezra and Esther, you'll find the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, and we're going to look at verse 13 together. Nehemiah 8, starting at verse 13. This is after the Babylonian captivity. Ezra been able to read from the law. They're coming back. Nehemiah, of course, his duty is to build wall, a wall around the city to fight off the, their enemies. In Nehemiah 8, starting at verse 13, it says, Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. No knowledge of the law. They want to gain insight. Verse 14. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. They didn't even know. That was news to them. One of the major feasts that God instituted in the Torah. They had no idea. Keep reading. Verse 15. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance, that celebration of the Torah on the final day. They had gone from Joshua Through the life of David and Solomon and the kings, the divided kingdom, the Assyrian captivity from the north, the Babylonian captivity from the south, 
And now, once again, after a thousand years, it's celebrated again. What an amazing, yet frightening reality that the Word of God can be so forgotten, so pushed to the side, and people would go off and do what's right in their own eyes, that they have no idea what's in God's Word. So we find from these texts, remember Moses is speaking to the leaders saying, focus on the law of God, that the first and primary task of a leader of God's people is to know the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to have a firm grip on the Word of God. First task for anybody who's going to lead God's people. And the next task is to entrust that Word to others, that they would then entrust the Word to others themselves. And we see this in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2.2. Timothy was told by Paul, the one who taught him, Paul said, as I have entrusted this to you, entrust it to other faithful men who will then be able to entrust it to others also. You see that lineage? That's the role of godly leadership, to know the Word of God and to pass on the Word of, Word of God. But the call of every Christian, leadership or otherwise, the call of every Christian is to hear the Word of God and to trust the Word of God and to live by faith in the God of the Word. Every single one of us, our primary task in this life is to know God, isn't it? Where do we go to know God? We go to His revelation. We open it up and we study and we see and we discover who He is and we discover who we are. That's our primary task. I'm going to quote somebody that I don't think I've ever quoted from this pulpit, at least not word for word, my wife. (laughs) I write down everything you say. No. (laughs) Uh, She made a a social media post this week that I thought was so spot on. She wrote, it's a common excuse to say we don't have time to read the Bible. I think it's more honest to say we don't prioritize the time to read the Bible. We simply cannot grow in the knowledge of God or gain wisdom for this life if we don't read His Word. Isn't that true for all of us? If we claim to be God's people and we ignore God's Word, where will we end up? The same place the Israelites ended up. Worshiping other gods, having our affections misapplied, chasing after the things of this world, things that will only burn and fade in the end. So the leaders were to have the law of God primary. And look at verse 26, Deuteronomy 31, verse 26. Speaking to the leaders again, look at the place that it has in their lives. It says, Take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. You think it's in a in a really honorable position right there? Yes, it is. We should treat the Word of God honorably. Put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. That's the role that it played in their lives. The law of God proclaiming God's holiness, displaying God's holiness, detailing God's holiness. 
It can only be a witness against us, can't it? That's why we don't like it. That's why we want to get, get, push it away. That's why we don't want to study it, because then, we're, then we have to change. When we see, when we read, when we understand the holiness of God and the holiness that we are called to live out, it can hurt. You mean I got to change my habits? You mean I got to stop doing this and start doing that? God is faithful to give you those desires, and it is going to hurt. Repentance isn't fun. (laughs) When's the last time you went to a repentance party? (laughs) It's not a fun thing. It's a painful thing when you recognize the depth of your depravity before a holy God and His testimony against you. But as you're crushed and pushed to the floor by the Word of God, and you come to Him in faith, what is God faithful to do? Pick you up, to work in your heart, to change your affections, to change those things that you love so dearly that you would be more oriented toward Him. Loving God, loving neighbor, that whole thing that we've seen over and over again in Deuteronomy, God is faithful to work that in you. But you have to start with, I'm not there yet. There's a song that was playing before you guys got here this morning. We just had music playing on the speakers. Um, That's just a prayer. The song is just an honest prayer that is meant to be sung corporately. And they say in that song, we haven't loved you, God, and we haven't loved our neighbor. Those are hard words to say sometimes because we might think we're doing really well. But we have to understand that we always are going to fall short when we try this on our own. And anything that God works in us, anything that God works through us is going to be a beautiful work for Him. We have to start with, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Well, there's plenty of opportunity in Israel's history for the law to be a testimony against them. Moses, in this chapter, speaks of Israel's dark future. He not only speaks to the next generation, but he speaks of their future as a whole. Look with me at verse 14. This is what Tyler read for us earlier. Deuteronomy 31, verse 14, repeating the fact that Moses is going to die. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of a cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. So God has appeared in this way before. He's appearing this way again. And again, just saying to Moses, you're about to die. You're about to die. Moses had a hard ministry. I, 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 couldn't, I can't imagine doing what Moses did. Keep reading. Second half of verse 16. This people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. There was always a certainty about Israel's apostasy. There was all, always a a surety that 
Israel was going to fall away, that they were going to turn from worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, and they were going to embrace idols. And the Old Covenant, this First Testament we've been studying, constantly exposed their idolatry, both in their outward actions and in their heart. And there's probably no greater evidence in the Old Testament of this prophecy coming true than Hilkiah's discovery, or Hilkiah. Do you remember Hilkiah and his discovery during the days of King Josiah? Hilkiah was a guy in Israel. Uh, King Josiah came to power, and Scripture says that King Josiah served the Lord. He was one of the quote-unquote good kings. And Hilkiah was helping clean house among God's people, and he discovered the law of God. How far did Israel have to fall that he discovered the law of God? It was supposed to be right there next to the ark as a testimony through all generations. And Hilkiah comes out, and do you remember what he said he found? Do you remember the phrase, the term that he used? Look what I found. He said, a book. The law of God to that generation was just a book. They didn't know what it was. What greater evidence is there of their apostasy? We talked last week about physical Israel and spiritual Israel, how physical Israel was everybody who was ethnically a Jew, who was a literal son of Abraham, but spiritual Israel was just a segment within that greater segment, people who truly believed by faith, people whom God was delighted to save. That was just a portion within Israel. And as we think about the church today, is the Word of God treated like the law was then in many of our churches? I think it is. I think there are lots of churches out there, big flashy churches, where you can go and the Word of God is just a book. It's a book. That's the physical church. The spiritual church the true regenerate believers in the church. That's what I mean by that. Those are the ones who love God and love the Word. You can't separate the two. They believe in God and they believe God's words. You can't separate those two. And so often we want to just, and I say we very generally, I don't mean necessarily this group, but so many people just want to say, well, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and I go to church. Sometimes. I have a church. And that's enough, right? A lot of people go to church who go to hell. Because they don't love God, they don't have faith in God, they have no idea what this says. There's a physical church where people come into buildings and that's nothing. You can't even say that's a good thing because so many of those churches teach bad things. Just because someone's associated with God's people, that does not mean that that person is a child of God. In Israel's history, we see it over and over and over again, though they were to believe the Word and entrust the Word to their children and their children's children. They didn't do it. And in the church today, so many people don't know what God has said. They're just in a building, and they have no faith. 
And all of these themes are found in chapter 32, which if you're looking at your Bible, perhaps chapter 32 is formatted differently because chapter 32 is mostly a song. It's God's song that He put in Moses' mouth. It's the song of Yahweh. Your title might say Song of Moses, but it's better said the song of Yahweh. God inspired all of these words seemingly in a way a bit differently than the Psalms. In the Psalms, you've got David expressing his personal experiences, David expressing uh, what he's going through at that time in his life. And here it's just a song that God gave Moses, said, this is my song, write this down. And we see four main themes in the song. And first is a call to acknowledge God's perfections. Look at the first four verses with me. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, and as the droplets of the fresh grass, as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Praising God for His faithful nature, for His perfect nature. These are the words that God has given us to study and to adhere to. The Lord is great and He is a faithful rock for His people. And right after that section, verses 5 through 18 That section contrasts man with God. It starts out by acknowledging God's perfections, and then it goes on to acknowledge man's imperfections. Look at just verse 5 with me. It says about the people, they have acted corruptly toward God. They are not His children because of their defect, but they are a perverse and crooked generation. There in one verse, what do we learn about man? Man is corrupt, he is perverse, he is crooked, he has a defect. Wow, that's quite a contrast, black and white when comparing with the nature of God, isn't it? Not a lot of overlap. In fact, there's no overlap there. And they are this way despite God's care for them. Look at verse 8. What did God do for these people? Well, it says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he separated the sons of man and he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. This, of course, isn't saying that God has a physical eye. It's an expression that he cared for them as an object of His love and His commitment. But what does Israel do? Jump down to verse 15 with me. What does Israel do in response? It says, But Jeshurun, and that's just another name for Israel, that's all you need to know right now, grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. For He, Israel, forsook God who made Him and scorned the rock of His salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods 
who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Wow. Even though God called these people His people, He saved them His own doing. He gave them blessings and a covenant and a name. What do they still do? They kick against God. They grow fat and they worship false gods. Again, just as this happened in Israel, within physical uh, Israel, this happens today too within Christianity, doesn't it? This happens in our day. People claiming to know God who are so far from Him. And so in the next section, the biggest section of this song, verses 19 through 35 roughly, speaks to God's justice, a call to recognize the justice of God. Already we read about how God's jealousy and God's anger were incited by Israel's actions, and what a holy and just and good response that is from God. Can you imagine if God never got jealous for His people? If God just thought, well, whatever, go do what you want. That's not how God is. He has a holy jealousy for His bride. He loves His people. He desires all of their affections. And His anger towards sin. Can you imagine if God didn't get angry about sin? What kind of God would that be? What kind of judge would that be? But God is perfectly just. He's angered by sin. And yet, even in the midst of Israel's sin and all the judgment they deserve, look how He treats Israel. Verse 28. Look how God treats this people, Israel. For they are a nation lacking in counsel, and there is no understanding in them. And that verse is just truer and truer as the Old Testament progresses. Verse 29, would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. For their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. What is all this saying? Well, just as Israel wandered and became a nation without discernment like all the other nations, Israel was the only nation that had a capital R rock. You see that it says in verse 31, their rock is not like our rock. Their lowercase r rock is not like our capital R rock. That God would be so faithful even though they've wandered and become like the rest of the world and they've heard the revelation of God and they've still turned to follow after vain idols. God is still their capital R rock because God made a covenant with them and there was no way that God would go back on that promise. That's how he shows his love is through covenants. And he made this covenant with Israel to be faithful to them, even in the midst of their wandering. Would they have to suffer because of their sin? Would there be effects because of their sin? Well, certainly. But God is still faithful to this people because God is faithful. Period. God is a faithful God. And in light of this justice and this love, Finally, the last part of the song, they were called to treasure God's compassion. 
Look with me at verse 36. The Lord will vindicate His people. He will have compassion on His servants. When He sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, and He will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. Verse 39, See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. And I will make arrows and I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Boy, that'll make you sit back a little bit, won't it? God will avenge his enemies. God says, I will make my arrows drunk with blood. That stuff's not in the Bible, is it? That stuff you read in those books you shouldn't be reading, that are glorifying death and gore and all that. No, this is holy vengeance. This is God's good justice that requires death. And at the end, verse 43, at the end of this song, the nations were invited to come in and to rejoice in light of who God is. Because God is just and God is faithful. So Israel was reminded by Moses and by Joshua here as the chapter ends. They were reminded to take these words in and to keep them. To hear the words of the law, to hear the words of this song and to keep them. And the Lord tells Moses one last time that he's about to die. Look at the last verse of the chapter. It says, For you shall see the land at a distance. But you shall not go there into the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. Wow, what a moment, what a moment. Now I want to think about that last section of the song again, and you guys would do well this week to read that in fullness in one shot, to sit down and to read through that. That's supposed to be like the national anthem of sorts for Israel at their time. God gave them this song through Moses. They were to know it and to keep it in their hearts. But I want us to focus on that last, last section, particularly the last verse, where the nations are called to rejoice. Rejoice, O nations, verse 43. How can the nations rejoice with Israel? That God is a faithful God who will protect His people. How can the nations around and outside of Israel rejoice? Well, today, the nations can rejoice. The nations can be glad, Scripture says. Because of the Son of God. Because when Jesus came, when God, Yahweh Himself, descended to earth and condescended by taking on human flesh, what did He make available to the nations? God. 
God made God available to the nations. God made God accessible to the nations. God brought the kingdom of heaven here that all people might be able to run to Christ, to know Christ, to have relationship with Christ, to be a part of His church. And you look at a verse like verse 43 where it says there will be this vengeance, avenging blood, rendering vengeance, atoning for the land and for the people. That's Jesus. If you read Revelation 19... The rider on the horse, when he comes, he's going to render vengeance. You remember what comes out of Jesus' mouth at the second coming? A sword. A sword. And you remember what his robe is dipped in? Blood. He came the first time as a suffering servant, a lamb. And he's going to come back a second time as a roaring lion. He came and he did make atonement for our souls. Jesus poured out His life unto death, giving up His life in exchange for ours, that we might be atoned for, that His people might be atoned for, as the verse references here. And He's going to come a second time, and there will be a physical battle, as the first time He pronounced victory over the spiritual enemies, Colossians 2 says. So the second time He's going to pronounce victory over all the physical enemies of His people. And he will be heralded as king by the entire world. Yet here we are between these two comings of Christ. The first coming that we celebrate at Christmas, right? And the second coming. Do we have any holidays for that? That one probably wouldn't catch on, would it? You wouldn't be able to get bags of candy at Walmart for that holiday. Um, But we need to live in light of that reality. And in a sense, we have a monthly holiday for that. And we're doing communion today. We're celebrating the Lord's table today. And remember what it says in 1 Corinthians about each time we take of communion together, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So we're looking back at the first coming and remembering the cross of Christ, but we're also looking forward to His coming. This is something that we do in light of both of those comings of Christ both advents of Christ. We remember the victory of Jesus over all the spiritual adversaries. We remember what Jesus did for our souls, purging us clean of our sin once for all, that we might be united to God by faith in Christ. Isn't that such a good message? And you see the text that we went through today and the song that we read through today, and if you see Jesus there, And how Jesus and His coming to earth and His second coming, how that fits in. It's an amazing thing that we are His people and that we have access to these blessings in Christ. We're going to take of communion now. Rex will come up and preside over the table. And let's remember what Jesus has done for our souls.